This is David Rovix, and you are tuned to 3CR, 8.55 a.m., Melbourne, Australia. Step three is finding there's a tactic when everyone believes it could be true. That if all the people work collectively, there just might be something we can do, and everything can change. Welcome to the Climate Action Show. My name is Vivian Langford, and salut, Babette. We would like to pay our respects to the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation, from whose land we are broadcasting at Radio 3CR, and the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation, where we can be heard at Radio Skid Row. This show was first broadcast on July the 25th, 2022. It's about two ways of preventing the land degradation that fuels climate chaos. Since then, at the Biodiversity COP in Quebec, most of the world signed on to protecting 30% of marine and land habitat by 2030. That's huge. And we'll be back with new shows in February. This show takes us to the Kosciuszko National Park where feral horses trample the spongy moss that conserves our water. We'll talk to Richard Swain, the Indigenous Ambassador for the Invasive Species Council. But first we'll go to Tasmania to catch up with Christine Milne. She connects us to the global greens in half a dozen countries and is also an ambassador for the Invasive Species Council. So we know how the feral horses and rabbits and camels and Patterson's curse got here. But my question to you listeners is, are we still misguided by a colonial mentality that has even infiltrated the environment movement under the guise of false climate solutions. Peg Party's coordinator for the Forest Biomass and Climate Working Group. She has served in the Tasmanian Parliament and is part of the Dogwood Alliance. Her big campaign at the moment is to stop wood pellets being harvested on an industrial scale for electricity. So welcome, Peg. Uh, what's it like where you are? Is there any snow? <laughs> there's there's snow around. I think I'm just down below it, but it feels awfully, awfully cold. <laughs> I, I sent you an article from Grist Media saying that in the southern United States, logging for these wood pellets is removing forests at four times the rate in the Amazon. And major conservation groups are sort of supporting this as a climate solution. Tell us about what's happening there. Yes, um, this, it's really appalling environmental destruction occurring in the biodiverse swamp forests of the southern US. So these are the ones that actually protect the land from incoming cyclones and hurricanes and which have the greatest array of species to be found in forests in the US. They're globally significant and they have been being logged at a much greater rate than the Amazon. And it is these days primarily to make uh, wood pellets for biomass burning, which is happening by and large in Europe and the UK and rapidly expanding now in Japan and South Korea as an alleged climate solution. But of course, when you burn wood, it actually releases more carbon dioxide per unit of energy produced than does burning coal. So the claim that this is somehow helping the environment is totally 
spurious. The argument goes that trees or a forest will grow back sometime and absorb all that carbon and it'll all be neutral. Well, firstly, the carbon's in the atmosphere for as long as it takes for a forest to grow mm. back, which is about as long as it took in the first place, you know, several hundred years, um, and making climate change worse. And secondly, nobody's even checking whether the forests ever grow back, and often they don't. In the US, there is no actual compulsion in those areas to even replant or regenerate those forests, and often they're not. The other appalling thing that's happening is the impacts on the people who live there and the people in whose communities this pellet manufacturing is happening. First of all, there's all the additional flooding and communities where people have been flooded numerous times. People in, the, in Australia are going to relate to that at the moment. And this is happening as a direct consequence in the US of cutting down those vital forests that have always been the protection from the sea coming in to the land in ferocious storms. Um, but also these pellet making plants and some of the generating plants are located in the most socially dis disadvantaged communities, communities of color, and they are often running without permits or without observing any permit conditions. The impacts on people's health are diabolical. Mm. Uh, so we've got an industry that is purporting to do something good for the climate and the environment whilst doing the exact opposite. And disappointingly, uh, at least one of the very large uh, conservation organisations in uh, the US, the Nature Conservancy, is actually supporting the claims of the forest industry to be good for climate. It's a bunch of nonsense. We saw in Tasmania how wrong this is, because if you look at Tasmania's greenhouse gas inventory, when uh, the wood chip industry collapsed, when guns, the big wood chipper, collapsed and they stopped logging the native forests, instantly there was a tenfold reduction in Tasmania's greenhouse gas emissions and we went to below net zero in our emissions. Clearly that's you know, influenced by the fact that we have renewable energy already here, but you could therefore see the impact of stopping doing forest management along forestry lines and just leaving the forests alone. That's the thing that needs to happen. And that's what gets evaded by this industry. Yeah, well, what alarmed me in this um, Grist article was the way the environmental groups were being sort of picked off and paid by the logging industry. And Christine, I, I wonder, would you like to talk about that? How is that happening in Australia? How does the politics of logging and land clearing work in Australia? The politics of logging and land clearing in Australia are now as they have always been. The, we are in a state of state capture by both the logging industry and the mining industry in Australia. And so uh, they run strong political campaigns, they donate heavily to political parties and they get what they want. But the environment movement is pretty well united in Australia in recognising that logging native forests to generate energy for biomass or to create an industry that would see the export of pellets, people are pretty much uniformly opposed and recognise that it's bad for the climate and terribly bad for biodiversity. 
So you'll see today with the release of the State of the Environment report by Minister Plebisek that the, the figures are absolutely shocking. ACF has come out and pointed out that 7.7 .7 million hectares of habitat for terrestrial threatened species have been cleared between 2000 and 2017. I know that uh, there, there is a big push on in Australia to try to prop up native forest logging, and that's of course coming from the logging industry. It's been given a boost by some in the union movement, and in particular, uh, the Joel Fitzgibbon, who was a former Labor member in the federal parliament, who's now gone across to work for the Australian Forest Products Association with a view to promoting logging, of course. And the whole issue here comes down to the fact that the logging, the native forest logging industry is on its knees. It is being propped up by subsidies uh, right around the country. In Western Australia, the, the end to native forest logging or, or a large percentage of it, not totally, but a large percentage was achieved by the, the state government there. It could easily be brought forward in Victoria. Um, Daniel Andrews has given it till I think 2030 or thereafter, but absolutely could be brought forward right now and it needs to stop in New South Wales as well. So really we have Minister Plibersek now could make a decision on the back of the terrible state of the environment in Australia for threatened species and for habitat loss, as well as for climate, she could make a decision right now to protect our forests and head off this push mm. to prop up native forest logging by creating a new industry around logging for biomass burning. Now, the coal industry wants that, and we've already seen in New South Wales um, there, uh, there's been a push on there. Um, there's one uh, coal-fired power station that's moved um, to using wood, and that is the um, Delta Electricity is doing that at the Vales Point coal power station at Lake Macquarie. And you will have heard that the Red Bank power station, also coal-fired power station, was trying to change its energy source uh, from coal to wood. And that has been held up at the moment uh, by a court case whereby the court determined that switching a power source from an energy source from coal to wood was a substantial change of use and therefore required a separate application. So that's only held up by a legal uh, argument at the moment and naturally they will come back and resubmit uh, for a new, uh, a new application. So what we're seeing is right around the country, the native forest loggers getting reorganised to try and create an industry around biomass burning and pretend that it's a climate solution. But as Peg has said, it generates far more greenhouse gases actually than burning coal. 3CR. The climate people I interview mostly seem to be against coal and gas and this whole new government okay stop coal and gas but do you think the climate movement is is alert enough about this threat not only from the pellets but also from land clearing and the you know the car the climate impact of land clearing 
No, no. the real no. <laughs> For some reason, it has been regarded as some sort of a competition between people advocating nature conservation and and um, people advocating on climate. Whereas, of course, we're all on about the same thing. We want a livable planet, and we want to look after our environmental treasures. But many do not understand that this is emissive and that these enticing lies from the uh, from the industry are just that, enticing lies. Um, I think also when we look at things like the state of the environment, of course we have to act to stop the use of fossil fuels and to stop uh, producing them in Australia. But we shouldn't go out of the frying pan into the fire, that is, into a false solution. One of the best things we can do is not take a species-by-species species approach, but take a landscape approach and protect the places that have these assemblages of different communities of species that all are under threat and forests is one of those yeah. so too you know the savannas in the in the north that are getting cleared for cattle these all need to be restrained rapidly and if i could just add to that vivian that the reason I think that the uh, climate movement is not is not so focused on biodiversity is, first of all, they don't see biodiversity as the other side of the coin on climate. Many of them have come to climate because they're renewable energy specialists or promoters. Mm -hmm. So they have come from an energy and a corporate energy perspective saying we, we've got the technology to actually move from coal fired and, and gas fired to renewable energy and renewable energy is a solution to the climate. But they've turned a blind eye to the impacts on biodiversity, which is why we are at the Bob Brown Foundation, but also Wilderness Australia and so on are arguing that you have to see them as two sides of the same coin. And increasingly the UNFCCC is recognizing that as well. Yeah. And where the rubber hits the road on this is for example, in Tasmania, where some of where there are some big wind farms proposed at Robbins Island. Very precious in a biodiversity sense. It is a, a, a disease-free Tasmanian devil population, but it's also the Southern end of the East Asia Australian flyway and has a huge migratory bird importance and of course the flats river flats and so on so the issue here is that they the transmission infrastructure to get to there is not is going to go straight through forests a large swathe through forests opening them up impacts on biodiversity impacts on that to produce renewable energy and so yeah. that that can't be seen as green if you are destroying biodiversity and that conversation hasn't really entered the conversation about energy and climate and I think that's exactly what Peg was just saying yeah. that a lot of the climate movement do not want to talk to us about the impacts on biodiversity because it's an inconvenient truth to the corporate agenda if you are in renewables and the fact we have to face is renewable energy is now big business and I'm very glad it is cool. but it's now Macquarie Bank and it's all a whole lot of you know big corporates and biodiversity is not something that they're prepared to consider when they're going to make a profit from a large project. 
that's why I started by saying the colonial mentality because I in, in indigenous people who I interview they say you have to take a much more holistic look you have to care for country number one and then I go to other conferences and I hear these billionaires talking about massive progress and they say oh the thing about Australia is there's not much population and we've got loads of land to spare as if all of that's terra nullius again and we go exactly. back to colonial and I think oh how are we are we just going to continue in this path Scott Ludlam said at a webinar last night that the climate itself has become an actor, a political actor. And I just thought that just wrapped my mind, a political actor. We always talk about Mother Nature flooding us or sending fires, but that's not quite it. We've, it's, these are not natural disasters. These are man-made. We've created that kind of turbocharged climate event that, that knocks people out. And flood, the flooding of Brisbane, uh, Scott Ludlam said, may have been influencing the vote in the last election. And then I see desperate people in Sydney locked onto cars in, in the Harbour Tunnel. Young people, you know, they were from Lismore, one of them. And, and she was just young and saying the system has to change. Desperate acts and then desperate policing too. Desperately vicious policing. So do you think this climate change has become a political actor is actually going to influence events on the really big picture of the global greens and where you're seeing things moving it's certainly going to influence the politics and there's no doubt about what you're saying about um, the floods influencing the vote in brisbane the greens had started door knocking those electorates that they won at the federal election three years ago uh, and became quite familiar their door knocking teams became quite familiar with local people and vice versa. And then the floods came and they went back out there and instead of talking politics, they said, we're here to help. And so they helped clean up a number of houses, clean out a lot of rubbish. They also um, spoke to people about the, obviously the connections about global warming, but they didn't need to be told. The people already understood that. And this is where there's actually been a shift when, when Bob Brown and I first started talking in the Senate, linking cyclones and extreme weather events uh, to global warming, we got was, oh, that is so insensitive. That is ambulance chasing. How dare you Greens be so insensitive as to talk about this when people need help? That was the mantra that we got. And I'm sure Peg got it in uh, the Tasmanian Parliament as well. We, we got it everywhere that that the mainstream politics was very quick to shut down any connection between an extreme weather event and global warming. Now they simply can't do it. That has been switched and everybody accepts as the heat wave starts in the UK, as the black uh, fires occur, black Saturday fires occurred here in Australia um, and the flooding in Brisbane and in Lismore and repeated flooding in New South Wales, people just recognise it is global warming. And where the disconnect is, is people now accept that those extreme weather events are global warming related, but they haven't yet actually linked that to the fact that there is all that carbon in the atmosphere. Every tonne of carbon you add to the atmosphere makes that worse. And so they can stand there and listen to the current prime minister stand up and say, we're back, we're acting on climate. And at the same time, backing a huge gas uh, facility up at Scarborough, mega, mega expansion at Scarborough and Browse, Beetaloo in the Northern Territory, Narrabri in New South Wales. 
there's a you know a, the Labor member for one of those Queensland electorates standing there proudly saying opening 18 new coal mines. <laughs> so they can do that at the same time as they say we're acting on climate. And the only people who point out that that is hypocrisy in the extreme is the Greens here, but also the Pacific Island leaders. And I was so pleased to hear them at the Pacific Island Forum last week basically saying, yes, we're pleased that there's an improvement, but as long as you keep on with coal and gas, that is a big problem to us. And so it's actually people like us standing with the Pacific Island leaders in the trenches who are telling the truth and everything else is just a fine line between continuing to deliver for the fossil fuel industry and I would add into that for the native forest logging industry with this push for bio burning native forests for biomass. Mm. Um, they're on the one side. And if you're a genuine climate activist, you have to care about biodiversity as well as greenhouse gas emissions and how the two relate to one another. Because yeah. as Peg said, saying, oh, the forests are going to grow back. Who says they're going to grow back? Regeneration has failed in Victoria. And with the changed climate conditions, different drought and rainfall patterns, there's no saying that those forests will grow back. No. Well, and not only that, but they won't grow back into Paris timeframes. That's for sure. No. Um, you know, we've got to act by 2030 and by 2050, we've got to be to net zero. Well, those forests are not going to be back again by then. And if they're getting logged every day and fed into a furnace, then, you know, we're, we're on such the wrong track. I loved what George Monbiot said yesterday in relation to the fires that are happening in Europe at the moment, which is a real, you know, it's the same wake up call that we've had in Australia. And he said, the measures that are being taken at the moment are like throwing a bucket of water at those fires. We need a whole lot more than a few buckets of water. And that's exactly the situation. We've got, you know, some gestures, but not anything real enough to make a big difference. And, and the one thing we don't understand about the loss of natural ecosystems is they're made of carbon. And when you lose them, it all goes into the atmosphere. So it actually, the loss of biodiversity exacerbates climate change. We know that climate change exacerbates the loss of biodiversity because it makes living conditions untenable for species. But we don't seem to have a grip on the fact that losing biodiversity actually itself puts carbon in the atmosphere and exacerbates climate change. Mm. Well, Christine, could I take you then to your experience now as a global Greens ambassador? Um, what have you seen about ecosystem restoration or where is it working? Let's lift the audience up now, like you must have seen around the World West. So I think once you told us about Costa Rica, maybe it was Peg who told us about Costa Rica. <laughs> oh, well, it could have been either because Peg and I went there together. <laughs> I did. Oh, that's right. I remember. But I just want to... I don't want to have this feeling that it's all this. Um, okay. I mean, the fact that climate change is an actor, political actor now, that's a, a formidable actor. That is an actor way beyond any of these fossil fuel industry industries that will all crumble to dust, you know, in the face of what we've unleashed. So where is it being restored? Ecosystems being restored, even forests. I mean, restoring wood by plantations isn't restoring biodiversity anyway. So where are these things being restored? Well, there is a wake-up call, as I mentioned, the climate uh, UNFCCC recognised that biodiversity is being ignored and there's been a big push now with the Biodiversity Convention, with the International Union for the Conservation of Nature, uh, with UNEP, 
to get together and lift the profile of biodiversity and the need to protect what is left and restore what is degraded. And so 2021 to 2030 has been declared the UN decade on ecosystem restoration. Now, at the same time as that has happened, there's the big push to protect and restore 30% of the planet's terrestrial and marine environment by 2030. So 30 by 30 is the shorthand for that. Now, you wouldn't have heard this very loudly in Australia, but in the last week of the election campaign, Labor whispered that they were committed to the 30 by 30. So how marvellous. We need to actually let everybody in Australia know that the government is committed to that. So that's a bit hopeful that they recognise that, and that's on the back of the G7 actually agreeing that the 30 by 30 is important. And of course, Joe Biden has also talked about that in the US and so on. So, uh, so the framework has been set and in theory, politically accepted that we need to protect and restore at least 30% by 2030. Now that has led to a whole lot of projects around the world looking at they call it, uh, rather than call it um, restoration, they often call it rewilding. And they're actually two quite different things. Rewilding is a subset of restoration of a landscape scale ecosystem. But nevertheless, there are some terrific examples in Scotland of large areas that people have uh, started to go back and try and uh, restore forests, for example. So I think there's a tremendous opportunity in Australia for the new federal minister, uh, Tanya Plebisek, to actually embrace the uh, restoration agenda. A lot of work is being done on the Great Eastern Highlands. So looking right down um, basically the Great Dividing Range and looking at restoration there. In Western Australia, there's the Gondwana Link project, which is looking at landscape scale restoration and connectivity between protected areas because you can't just have islands of biodiversity, we have to link them up. But all around the world, uh, in Portugal, and I was when I was looking at the fires the other night, I was wondering how close they'd come to this major restoration and protection project that people have been working on. I was feeling a bit sick that that might have been lost to the fires. But what I can say is there is an increasing global recognition that we have to get real about protecting ecosystems so that we give ourselves a fair chance. And in terms of fire, you know, all the scientists are saying that the best way to slow down fires is to maintain intact old forests because they, are, they actually are much better in the face of a fire than ones that have got logging roads through them and young trees, young plantations are much more likely to burn than something that has been protected. So there is hope, Vivian, absolutely, but people have to start linking biodiversity with climate action, recognising that maintaining forests is, protecting and maintaining forests is something that they could do straight away in Australia and it would make a huge difference. When you compare an old growth forest compared to a forest which is regrowing after a disturbance like logging, they're actually quite different ecosystems. Generally, like older, wetter forests 
slow down the path of fire. And this is actually quite a well-known phenomenon. Historically, these big, large fires have been quite rare, but what we've seen in the last 20 years is they're becoming quite a lot more common. So we've had three in the last 20 years. This is definitely because of climate change, which is making our ecosystems a lot drier and the fire weather more intense. We need to keep Radical Voices on air. Subscribe now. Go to 3cr.org.au forward slash subscribe or call the station on 9419 8377. we're going to hear from the Indigenous ambassador talking about healing country. He talks about responsibility and he invites all of us who live here in Australia to care for the country. A new Environment Minister, Tanya Blibersek, will be consulting widely, she said, about how to respond to this State of the Environment report. And a climate trigger is proposed to prevent new projects from causing further emissions. Now, as I said before, we're probably most be thinking about coal and gas projects, but I'd like to ask each of you, could this be applied not only to coal and gas, but to land clearing and logging, the climate trigger, Peg? Well, absolutely, it could be. So could a biodiversity trigger, which is there already in, in effect. Um, it just hasn't been. I mean, the, you know, the, the point here is political will. And, and understanding, as I said earlier, that we really need to begin to tackle things at a landscape scale. We need to restore, as Christine has eloquently talked about, and we need to make sure that we don't do restoration and forget to do protection, because we've got to stop the damage that's going on and then do the restoration. But yes, in terms of a climate trigger, certainly um, uh, uh, the loss of, uh, of biomass to the atmosphere is indeed such a trigger. And I might add, there is the ability for the minister to immediately add a trigger under the EPBC Act and to, while getting around to revising the legislation and all the rest of it, because if we're going to wait for new laws and then all the regulations and get them implemented, we can't sit on our hands while that's happening. We've got to get moving now. Okay, Christine, what about the climate trigger? Uh, yes, absolutely, climate trigger, and we've been arguing that for years, and as Peg said, all of this has been possible, it's just a lack of political will. And there's one thing, even while we're waiting for new legislation, and Graham Samuel, of course, came out and pointed out what we all can see with our very own eyes, the degradation of the Australian environment and completely ineffectual EPBC Act. The one thing that the Minister could do right now is basically put into, uh, into the federal government uh, in across all legislation, all regulations, that, you, that, that any energy generated from burning native forests is ineligible under the definition of renewable energy or for any, any government programs, subsidies, et cetera. You could do that tomorrow. We did that with the clean energy package back in 2011, and it was excluded during those years that that was in place. As soon as Tony Abbott came back in, he put, he put uh, biomass burning back in as a renewable source of energy, which it isn't. And so the minister could do that tomorrow if she chose. And that would be a perfect thing to do because that would head it off while we wait to get the bigger triggers in for the, for the landscape scale. This would at least prevent 
this industry getting off the ground because we're actually at that point now where the loggers are in the ear of government to try and get this biomass burning happening and we can stop it now if we just get rid of that definite get it out of the definition of renewable energy yeah Peg, any last words for the new environment minister Oh, well, I, th I think um, Christine's quite right. We, we need Labor to rediscover once upon a time they actually thought that native forest biomass should not be burnt um, as some form of renewable energy and get rid of that immediately because the subsidies and the incentives that come along with that will only encourage the runaway destruction of uh, natural forests and, and um, probably savannas, clearing of savannas as well. Uh, the message for the minister is, you can't have your cake and eat it too. You can't keep on approving coal and gas developments. You can't, keep, you can't approve the burning of native forests for energy and think that you're going to tackle the climate crisis and the biodiversity crisis on some other hand. Mm. These are intimately connected and, and there's a choice to be made. We expect the government to make the choice to actually protect and restore our environment and try and tackle the climate with some sort of political will. Super. Thank you very much. So we've been talking to Peg Pass and Christine Milne in Tasmania. Thank you very much to both of you. It is important to stay up to date with your COVID-19 vaccinations, including your booster dose. Getting a booster means you'll increase your protection against severe disease and continue protecting your loved ones and community against COVID-19. You can get your free COVID-19 booster dose if you received your second dose of a COVID-19 vaccination at least three months ago. To book an appointment, visit australia.gov.au or call 1-800-020-080 and select 8 if you need an interpreter. Visit health.gov.au or speak to your doctor to find out when you are eligible. Authorised by the Australian Government, Canberra. A 3CR supporter. We're all good at hiding, running like we don't feel in choosing to silence. The things that are hard to hear, it's not in the fighting or the way we divide ourselves. If we stop the fearing, we'll be unstoppable. This is disaster. I know it's been hard. You're not in 
Our guest now is Richard Swain. He's the Indigenous Ambassador for the Invasive Species Council and I met him first at Sydney at the screening of Where the Water Starts. It takes us to the Kosciuszko National Park where he does river guiding. So I'd like to welcome you Richard. Look what stood out for me when I saw your film Where the Water Starts was you invited all of us, all Australians, to care for country. Could you talk to that? Because it was a real invitation. You said it's not just a local people thing or an Indigenous thing. This is for all Australians. Everybody here can care for country. Could you talk about that? Oh, well, it's 2022 and um, all of us here now are the current custodians of, of this country. Uh, two centuries now people have thought they're not custodians, they're just exploiters. And there's no future in that. We need to turn that around and, and we need people to accept the responsibility of custodianship and to start to protect what, what's left. We, we have the highest, one of the highest extinction rates in the world and the highest mammal extinction rate in the world. And so it's, it's about time Australians actually became Australians and that, that means accepting the responsibility of custodianship. It doesn't seem real to city people. I think people visit the country, they visit the snowy mountains and they don't feel that same feeling of we must protect this. Do you find that when the people go on your river tours, when you do the river guiding, people wake up to something new? Oh, definitely. Uh, Australian culture is to live like aliens upon this continent. <laughs> to allow for these extinctions, to accept all the extraction of the resources, but not accept any, any remediation afterwards. I, I think it's, um, that's just the Australian way. Australia does not care about this continent. And, and I know that sounds harsh, but there's no evidence to prove otherwise. So it's about time we accept responsibility, you know, for, for probably 5,000 generations or however many people cared and for country. And it's only been the last 10 where people haven't and, and the proof's in the pudding. We, we, no, no matter what type of lifestyle we have, whether it's as modern, whatever, we, we still need to be sustainable. We still need to be custodians. I think Australia is changing. It's changed definitely in the last, every decade I see a change, but at the moment I see a real yearning to, to be connected to country. I feel that yeah, Australia is changing and changing rapidly and it actually, it has to change rapidly. You know, you can put your blinkers on or turn a, turn a blind eye, but it's, um, these things are happening and, and it is our responsibility. Yeah. Well, look, scientists in the film, I think, called this a fragile alpine ecology. So listeners, we're thinking now about the Snowy Mountains, Kosciuszko National Park, the headwaters of three main rivers. And that ecology there, that sort of mossy, low-lying, you know, it's very windswept up there, sometimes snow and very, you know, rude conditions. Um, the scientists call this a fragile alpine ecology, and there are 34 plant species that are threatened by the galloping hooves of the wild horses. So do in did Indigenous leaders and the scientists, do they agree on solutions to this, the way to turn this back, turn this around? Well, of course we do. The... The local mob believed there should be no horses. The scientists were prepared to compromise uh, for no, no scientific reason and leave 600 horses. But um, 
you could take this story and plonk it anywhere in Australia. The, you know, Australia is full of unique environments. We, we've, we're an island that set sail a few million years back and we, with a bunch of unique species that have gone extinct on, in other continents. And um, we, we have a responsibility to that. And, and I use the word responsibility a lot because that's what it actually is to be human. Yeah. And um, the, the Snowy Mountains is unique to the world as the Barrier Reef. The, it is full of species that exist nowhere else on the planet. And horses are not unique. They exist on every other continent bar Antarctica. And really, we're going to send things extinct just for some people's hobby. That's it. That's, that's it in a nutshell. We, we, we have deer all through the World Heritage in Tasmania for the hunter's hobby. Mm. We, we have um, trout sending our native fish extinct for fishermen's hobbies. We, we, we do a lot just for people's hobbies. Is that true? Is a trout trout is not a native species? No, trout are invasive species, and they're like the fox of the river. You know, the, oh. the carp would be the rabbit of the, of the river, and the fox and the trout are the fox of the river. Um, wow! But again, we're prepared to send things extinct for for some, certain people's hobbies. Well, that'll that'll astound a few people listening to this. I would think I have I hadn't sort of realised that in that way. I mean, I was thinking in the film we see the vegetation and and they keep saying how spongy it is up there in the snowy mountains. And how, could you explain how it protects the three rivers that are flowing inland? You know that spongy vegetation. We see all the animals that can live in there too. And when the snow falls on it, they've still mm. got little caves under the grasses. But if you remove that or if it's pounded down by the horses, that reduces the water flow, doesn't it? Oh, very much. The, the sphagnum moss is pretty much what the mountains were. The mountains were a huge sponge. All of Australia is, used to hold a lot more water than it does nowadays. And so, yeah, that, that sponge is, collects the water and then it slowly it filters it and slowly releases it over summer so the mountain streams were always clean and fresh and always flowing i think from the original grazing before they banded it grazing in like i think it finished up probably about 1970 but i believe we lost about a third of all our sphagnum bogs in the mountains and, and there are parts there that are rivers that were never rivers they were um they were a bog right right down but the cattle grazing and the hot fires did that to that that land landscape yeah by 1944 it became a state park and that's because William Kell went for a 10-day ride through there and saw the damage and said enough's enough and so then they protected it by 1970 we'd protected a lot of the subalpine area as well and you would think after 50 years of being a national park at these fragile areas would be protected but to give you an idea in the in the 80s going on scat analysis in the lower snowy the largest consumer of that environment was rabbits uh, followed by native animals followed by horses and there were no deer uh, 30 years later the largest consumer of that environment is horses followed by deer followed by rabbits and the native species are nearly zero yeah. So in the time it's been a national park, it has become a feral animal national park. Oh. Well, there was a time when they got rid of all the cattle. How come they 
how come the horses took over so badly? Oh, it's just Australia's culture. We there are a lot of people. They're not comfortable with this continent and its species, and mm. and they haven't been reared to to be connected to this landscape. They they're they're connected on in a certain way through through exploitation. So when a movie, a, a fictitious poem, a fictitious uh, movie, et cetera, comes about and books, well, they, they, they can cling to that because that, that works for them in their disconnected way. It's, it's sad and unfortunate and not healthy for country. Um, it, and it may help them with some emotional needs, but it, it doesn't help country in the slightest. Yeah, well, we're talking about this film, The Man from Snowy River, and I think the Olympics started, the Sydney Olympics had a display of The Man from Snowy River, and this is given the greatest mythological um, standing. But in there was a film mm. from Four Corners that showed the people who were opposed to Brumbies being cold or any of the wild horses being taken away. And then we saw John Barillaro in New South Wales Parliament passing a Heritage Act which protected them as heritage. Um, but that mm. film was very, seemed to be very divisive. It was just sort of like the conflict, you know, if it bleeds, it leads. So we have the film that shows the conflict. But your film, Mandy and Fabio's um, film, is a sort of gentler, more educated look, I think, at it. It, may, it looks at it as like, well, what's the way forward? This is a myth that's been caught on. You know, people have been taught that. Children are brought up on the Silver Brumby books and the poem. And, the, and as we see the Olympics, you know, it's given cultural, huge cultural credibility. But do you think really the film makes a point that the Brumbies are a sort of proxy for white people or Europeans? Do you think that protecting the Brumbies' right to roam stands in for us white people's right to roam and do as we like on the continent? Is that is that the deal? Uh, I guess it does. I, I'm not real good with the white people thing. I, yeah. Uh, um... It's a colonial attitude. Yes. And so I believe if you're, whatever your genetic heritage now is, if you consider yourself Australian, you, you should accept the responsibility of custodianship, no matter what your genetic makeup. Yeah. So I'll, I'll, I like the term, it's a colonial yeah, um, that's better. concept. That, and that is about exploitation. And there is a bit of a thing in Australia where people... You know, they're happy to accept the hospitals, the roads, you know, the lifestyle, the freehold land, all the things, the benefits that come with um, being Australian. But then they think being a custodian of land, that's for someone else. That's mm. that's for those who have blackfella in them. Or, yeah. Um, and, you know, that that's not the case. And we, we start, our children are being educated appropriately at the moment you know there seems to be a change but we can't wait for them we no. it's um it's up to us who know better now to to make the changes yeah that's right at the film showing i think one of the people in the audience who i know is an indigenous woman and she said she thought we should lead with you know storybooks and films for children and you know for the next generation but as you say say we can't really wait this is a this film educates us in one go, really, at how fragile that land is. It needs to be immediately uh, cleared of the Brumbies, as far as I can see from that film. And even the Brumbies aren't doing well. In the bushfires, they managed to escape, but some of them in the drought, they were just dying all over the place. It's, it's really 
really animal cruelty in a lot of ways too. Uh, yeah, I think 5,000 died in the bushfires and they were dying en masse in the drought. But what people will forget, because the media loves to show a photo of a dead horse, they forget that, that before that horse died, it had consumed the environment of all the native animals. And, yeah. And Australians drive past roadkill day in, day out, and don't bat an eyelid, but the, no. it seems to me if a picture of a dead horse gets on the news, everyone gets... Mm. Upset Careful. by it. Um, yeah. Well, look, this is a climate action show and, and, and there's a connection here with climate action. But uh, a lot of it that we do and we interview people is about stopping coal and gas and oil. But it's also about protecting mm. the land, like farming land, forest land, not logging, keeping carbon sinks in place, keeping the water, you know, the, the soil carbon intact. Can you talk about your work with um, reclaiming COSI as part of climate action? Oh, well, the, the biggest threat to our native species currently is invasive species. And it's one of the issues a lot of the environment groups don't want to go near because it's not popular in some ways, whether it be cats or, or horses, etc. But it, it's one of the things we can actually change. We don't need to be in the position we're in with invasive species. We don't need to have the largest feral pig population in the world, feral horse population in the world, feral camel population in the world. We, we, we don't need to have that. In the last 30 years, we've lost 50% of all our small mammals in the Northern Territory, thanks to feral herbivores. And feral herbivores, like horses or buffalo, they take the roof off, they tear the roof off our native species houses. Now, our native species create healthy grasslands and till the soil and sequest all of that carbon. I, I'm very proud to be the Indigenous Ambassador for the Invasive Species Council. And, and, I, and I see with Reclaim Cozy and what's happening in the mountains, that's, that's the rooftop of Australia. That, that's, um, if we can't protect that jewel on that crown, then we're, we're nothing. And um, so I'm, I'm proud to take this stance because it's it's doable and and it's accepting my responsibility as a custodian of this country and um so and it's a attitude shift because i believe we we pollute our nation and we destroy our nation because our culture allows us to do that at the moment i think the most sacred land in australia in most people's perceptions is what they call prime agricultural land and, and that, that saddens me, you know, and, and if all this fracking that we're about to do goes ahead, mining will finally catch up to agriculture for the worst thing to ever happen to this continent. Mm -hmm. we, we don't even want to own that agriculture, what agriculture and hard hooves have done to this country and our waterways and what all the farming chemicals and all that have done to our biodiversity. We don't even want to own that, which no. that saddens me because... No matter what we do, we should be doing it sustainably. Whether you're making coffees, building houses or farming, we should strive to be sustainable and look for the best solutions we can. Yeah, well, I went to Broken Hill once and I went to, I think it was an outdoor museum of where the sheep had roamed. Thousands and millions of sheep had been shipped down on the Darling River and and now it's a desert. You just see these emu, emus strutting around. They've got these archival photos up of the thousands of sheep being herded onto barges or ships to go down the river. Oh, and that and that land can't be reclaimed now. I don't think for anything. It's 
um, you know. Well, it's it's it won't be you won't get it back to what it was, but it has to be regenerated. Regenerated, um, yes. Some, we, we can do that through regenerative grazing. There's all kinds of uh, ways we can do that, but we need yeah. to start doing these things. Yeah, the yeah. Darling River used to be drinkable. Yeah. yeah I wouldn't even. You feel dirty to dip your toe in the Darling River now. Mm. Lake Mungo. Lake Mungo is famous because of the um, Aboriginal artefacts and the and the grave sites there. Yeah. Very few people come away saying what the sheep did there is a crime. That mm. is, my God, what the sheep did there. Nobody comes away saying that. We we as Australians seem to miss the point. We put the blinkers on. Yeah. Even though we know, we, we know what's happening. Very few people put their hand up in a room and say they don't, because we do. We just see, we're very good at turning a blind eye and, and that's our current culture. It's I include me in that. I'm a modern Australian. Yeah, well, I include me in that too. I was a history teacher when I was working and I used to teach Australian history from the textbook. And it was just like you say, absolutely in denial and complicit really and the whole project going on as an extractive thing. Okay, so the reason I ask all of us to fulfill our roles is because that's who we are now. It's as Bruce Shillingsworth says in the film, it's about us. Yes. And it, if you're if you're standing here today then you're in it. You're yeah. part of it. Yeah. I know Bruce and he, he really works hard up here in Sydney and you know he's yeah he's a, a great <laughs> great advocate for what you're saying the last question is i'd like to come back to the snowy 2.0 now i know it's really controversial pumped hydro mm. project i spoke to people after the bushfires in 2020 and they said it was going to be a white elephant then but five years later the headline the most recent headline was a snowy 2.0 emerges as a 10 billion dollar white elephant now this is meant to be the government's was under turnbull the government's greatest icon of climate action uh you live up there or up around i imagine you go people around kuma must be getting jobs in that project and i imagine it's doing a lot of environmental damage can you just bring us up to date on what's happening it's good for the economy so <laughs> the snowy the snowy at the moment is flat out I, people talk about Snowy 2 a lot. Um, Snowy 1 was the real crime. They, they dammed 12 major rivers and 76 creeks and and they took 100% of everything. I, I, for the life of me, I don't think there's a fishway in the Snowy scheme. And um, Snowy 2 is pumped hydro, which pumped hydro in the right situations is an environmentally good idea. It's a, it's a broad battery for our modern society. As for the engineering and the cost and everything for that one, well... If it doesn't stack up, then I don't know why we did it. There was 22,500 other sites available in, in, the, in the country to do pump storage hydro. And for some reason, they want to overturn putting the power lines underground. They want to cut another big sway through the National Park to put the power lines overground. They also will more than likely bring invasive redfin fish and climbing galaxids etc up into the tantangra catchment which will wipe out the last of the stocky galaxids i don't know I, i'm not the expert on it no i just i i hope future generations can because we're not obviously up for it i don't know why malcolm turnbull would do such a thing because we haven't planned for the future even at all. So we need to start planning soon and, and we need to start being sustainable. And yeah. Snowy One needs to be looked at for, if it's not environmentally friendly, let's look at it. Let's just be honest about it and look at it. 
and not everything has to be about the dollar. Mm. What do you think should happen about that? Should that be regenerated too? Well, if it's publicly owned, we should regenerate it. We should have a living river system and have the best of the hydro system we can. Yeah. We should have the best irrigation models downstream, not just based on greed and and uh, the current Murray Darling plan. We we I don't why why doesn't why doesn't our culture allow for living rivers and living people? Yeah. I don't get it. Why at the moment to save the environment is always a fight. It yeah. really should be a fight to, to wreck the environment. We should just yes. consider the a living environment as a given. And if someone wants to wreck it, they need to thoroughly explain why they want to wreck it. And, and we agree upon that because, oh, yeah, we can see the benefits in allowing that amount of whatever mm. for, for, you know, as long as it's sustainable. So I don't, I don't get how educated people at the moment are in power whether it be corporate or politics, and they're all just playing follow the leader. They are all selling their soul. Yeah, yes, exactly. And, and, and they don't have that culture that you're talking about, that feeling of educated to protect and educated to be custodians. Oh, said, connection to country. That's a right. culture of being connected to country, yeah. Well, we've really been educating ourselves to be disconnected here, and now we're surprised when it, we get flooded and burned and, you know, it's, uh, it shouldn't be a surprise at all. And uh, Richard, any parting words about how we can join your Save Cozy campaign or, or, you know, just get ourselves educated on this? Yeah, well, I mean, Reclaim Cozies, you've just got to Google it or the Invasive Species Council. Yeah. And, and other than that, just start caring and start being honest about what we are doing. And, and let's, let's change our culture. We should have started years ago and we haven't. So let's, let's start now. If you see a river and it's not drinkable, well, 200 years ago, 150 years ago it was. And the reason it's now not drinkable is us, not the other animals, us. We, we need to just get a culture where we care. Thank you. So that's, we've been talking to Richard Swain and he's part of a film, documentary film called Where the Water Starts. Thanks, Thank Richard. you for listening to the Climate Action Show. Please tell your friends to listen in and support the climate action that we discuss each week. Each week there's at least two groups that you can join and campaigns that you can take part in. Thank you tonight to Christine Milne and Peg Putt in Tasmania. Thank you to Richard Swain in Malakuta. You can join the Save Cozy campaign and help the Invasive Species Council. After we heard the State of Environment report this week, many people fell into a sort of paralysed sense of despair, I've heard. But you can take action. Start by contacting the Minister, Tanya Plibersek. Ask her to take wood pellets off the list of renewable energies, as Christine Milne advised us. Ask her to protect the fragile alpine environment by getting rid of the feral horses and other invasive species. As Richard Swain told us, Australians are really yearning to be connected to country. It's about time we accept responsibility. Tell Tanya Plisasek that you are not a bystander, that you are stepping up and you want her to help you and you will give her a lot of <laughs> approval if she does. My name is Vivian Langford. Good night.
and good luck. This is coal. Don't be afraid. The Don't treasure. be scared. It's coal. It's coal. Tune in every Monday at 5pm to hear the Climate Action Radio Show. That was part of our summer season. We'll be back in February with new shows starting out on uh, New Zealand, Air Taroa and the Pacific. Hi, I'm Claire O'Rourke and I'd like to tell you about my new book, Together We Can. It brings together stories of everyday Australians doing amazing things to give our planet a future. The book has stories from all over the country, from Kingaroy to Kangaroo Island, Gloucester to Gadigal Country, from Hobart to the Hunter and on Nam too. People are building community connections, learning from First Nations leaders, inventing new technologies, starting transformational businesses and not-for-profits too. They're harnessing their skills and their networks to achieve systemic, scaled climate action right now. Hearing these stories convinced me that we are in a moment where we can achieve a faster and fairer transformation of our economy and society. Together We Can is by me, Claire O'Rourke. Find it in all good bookstores or at your favourite online bookseller.